Good morning, everybody. It is great to be here together to worship our God together. It's wonderful to have some visitors with us this morning to worship with us. We're thankful you're here. And uh, to praise our God is the main priority we have today. We've done so in prayer and song, and uh, now we're going to do, do so through the study of His Word together. Now, as we go through this, um, I'm going to confess to you, obviously, I do not have a handle on everything the Bible teaches. I do not have a handle on everything Hebrews teaches. Hebrews takes a lot of jogs, a lot of tangents, a lot of paths that I'm still trying to process through. So this study this morning through this first half of of Hebrews chapter 2 is not going to be um, exhaustive necessarily. But we're going to go ahead and study... Uh, After we studied Hebrews 1, the last time I spoke, we're going now into Hebrews chapter 2. So we're going to cover verses 1 through 10 of Hebrews chapter 2. And the kind of the focal point that I want to notice in this introduction is the first uh, main point that's made in this section. We must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Now, the first part of, of this Uh, second chapter starts out with the word therefore. So whenever we see the word therefore, we have to go back to see what that word is there for. So we're going to spend a minute here going back to Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews chapter 1, last time we covered, it was all about drawing these Hebrew Christians back to the faith. They're starting to drift. They're starting to maybe even leave the faith because of difficulty, because of the Messiah has not come yet. What are we going to do? And so there were several arguments made. The beginning of the chapter said, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Then he goes to give a sevenfold defense for the son's, uh, for the son's credibility in light of the gospel in light of the new covenant. He calls the son the heir of all things. It says that he made the worlds, that he is the brightness of his or God's glory. He is the express image of his or God's person. He is the upholder of all things. He is the purger of sins, and he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So how much, how worthy is this Jesus of serving and following in light of all these things? And there was a special comparison we talked a lot last week about angels, how great angels were, and yet the Hebrew writer says, Jesus is God, which is much greater than the angels. So in light of this previous buildup, now that's why he's going to say, therefore, at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, because of all of these reasons, let's read Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 10. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, According to his own will. For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, 
and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It is difficult in, in a large letter, with a lot of urgency that we see here, to break up this into separate sections. Like last week, we started right before therefore. So I know I've stopped kind of in the middle of a thought, but that's the nature of reading a letter. We kind of have to. So Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. That is one of the main points this writer's making at the outset of the letter. So the Hebrew writer, he, he goes through a series of build-up, giving reasoning, giving defense, giving logic, and theology for a conclusion that he makes. And this is his first conclusion. He says, give a more earnest heed. We don't, we don't say that. What do those words mean? He's basically saying, pay more close attention, give more concerted concern, commitment and care in your service to God. Draw closer to these things. And you notice he gives kind of a relative statement. He doesn't say, get to this point. He says, give a more earnest heed. And that is, that's a pattern in our Christian lives. If we're always going for a more earnest and a more earnest and a more caring commitment to serving God, we will always be better. It is a relative standard that we're always pushing to. And that these Hebrews needed to hear, lest they not drift away. And this word drift away is exactly what it sounds like. It's a slipping away. It's not necessarily an intentional thing. But to drift away from anything or from the faith, you simply have to do nothing. We know how to be saved. We know the steps to come to salvation. But the path to being lost and being away from God is a simple process. You do absolutely nothing. That's what he was concerned about for them. Thus, they drift away. We're going to come back to that a little bit more in a second. Verse 2. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward or a just consequence, how shall we escape if we ne neglect so great a salvation? So he's these Hebrews... He's treating them like they understand the Old Testament. So we've already talked about the, the role of angels. Angels were a vessel through which God provided them the old law. We see that in the book of Galatians. We see that several places in, in Acts where the angels were the ones who brought the old law, who were kind of helping to bring that in. So Jesus is bringing in a new covenant, and he's basically saying, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation that is in this new covenant? And if the Old Testament, the word spoken through angels, that's the old law. They knew about it. If that proves steadfast, how much more basically shall we pay attention to this new law brought by the Son of God himself? Now, that statement about the angels, uh, the word of the angels spoken being steadfast, we're a little removed from a lot of those events. For the Hebrews reading this or hearing this message, 
it would have been very much in their, in their history, part of their, what they're grown up uh, being taught. In our culture, we're taught this all could be gibberish for all we know. We're not given uh, in our culture respect for God's word to treat this like actual history. The Old Testament is legitimate actual history. It's corroborated with events we see in other history books from other places. Now, in order to give us maybe a more serious perspective on what they might have thought of, I want to take us to the situation with Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament. So the Hebrew people uh, could trace their lineage back to uh, Lot and Abraham. And in Genesis 13, we can read about these events. So when the Bible says a just reward for their disobedience, Sodom and Gomorrah is is a popular example. And there's some interesting things we want to note here. We're going to be covering this in our Old Testament reading next week, so I thought it might be fitting to uh, give this example. Genesis 13, verse 10. You have Abraham and, and Lot who are going to claim their lands. And it says this, And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, before the Lord, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And it was well watered like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zor. Lately I've been trying to pick up on um, references back to the Garden of Eden. And here's one. That this Jordan plain, it's referred to often as the plain, it consists of an area, a fertile land around the Jordan, which is kind of around the Dead Sea now. And it was like the garden of the Lord. That's an interesting picture here because Sodom and Gomorrah is going to be, I think you know already, is going to be destroyed. But it used to be this flourishing land, well watered, it was a fertile place, like the garden of Eden. But sin came and corrupted and tainted that land. Okay, keep that in mind as we go forward. So they include include in parentheses before the Lord destroyed it. So let's go on to see what happens. In verse 12 of, let's see, this is, this is in Genesis chapter 19. So we've skipped a few chapters to see what happens in Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis chapter 19, beginning in verse 12. Then the men said to Lot, Now, these men, we learn, are not normal men. And it tells us in some other verses around it, these are actually angels taking the form of men. Okay, God does that sometimes. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place. We will see next weekend when we read about what did they do? What was so bad in Sodom? But for now, it suffice to say God is judging them. And his, his angels, his messengers are telling them to get out of this place. God is going to destroy it. Verse, th- verse 13. For we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Okay, so that's, that's one of the clues you know it's angels. Verse 14. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, so his daughter's wives, who had married his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. This is a connection to the, to the Hebrew writer, because the Hebrew writer is trying to get the audience to take what he's saying seriously. He's trying to make us pay more close attention to the word that was spoken because judgment is real. And this was a common problem. Lot's son-in-law 
kind of thought he was joking about the judgment that was coming. They didn't take it seriously. And that proved to be deadly for them. Let's go on. Verse 15. When the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And while he lingered, so he was a little hesitant to, to leave, the men took hold of his hand, his, wife hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. So it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you nor stay anywhere in the plain. Remember, this is the fertile, beautiful, Eden-like plain of the Jordan. Escape to the mountains. Get away lest you be destroyed. Verse 23. So Lot tries to reason with them, ask him to please save the city. It doesn't happen. Verse 23. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. So that was a little ways away. Then the Lord rained brimstone, which is sulfur, and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, sulfur is the smell you're going to smell today, this evening, when you, hear the, when you see the fireworks going off. That smell of the fireworks is like sulfur. That might be what it smelled like when, this, when these events happened. The Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. The word heavens in the Old Testament, it simply means the sky. There's different words translated, but the heavens, is the fire and brimstone is coming from the sky. Verse 25, so he overthrew those cities, all the plain. So several cities around that fertile area in the Jordan, all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. God's judgment was serious here. They thought he was joking. It was tragic. This had to have been sad for God to see. Because this is one of those places that was like the Garden of Eden, it says. It was a beautiful place full of life and life-bringing water. Today, the Dead Sea is one of the saltiest places on the earth. We're going to get to more of that in a minute. But now that Dead Sea is a place of death. It's a place of destruction and a place where life doesn't grow well. This is all tied back to God's judgment of Sodom. It says, and what grew on the ground. So, I want to help tie this more to our current understanding, to, so we will see the evidence and the seriousness of this call. There's an article posted uh, in 2018, based on a study, an archaeological study that was done around the area of the Jordan and the Dead Sea. And they found some very interesting things. So this is archaeologists found this. According to the paper's abstract, the scientists discovered evidence of a high heat explosive event north of the Dead Sea that instantaneously devastated approximately 500 square kilometers. Okay, so this is a, this is a quote from the Times of Israel. This is kind of like, you know, the, the New York Times. This isn't some like, this is, a, this is a legitimate news source and there's a bunch of them. The explosion would have wiped out all civilization in the affected area, including Middle Bronze Age cities and towns. Sylvia told Science News that the blast would have instantly killed the estimated 40,000 to 65,000 people who inhabited Middle Gore, a 25-kilometer-wide circular plain in Jordan. Let's go on. Likewise, the fertile soil would have been stripped of the nutrients by the high heat 
and the waves of the Dead Sea's briny and hydride salts would have tsunami-like washed over the surrounding area. At the same time, the explosion's fallout, or the, the, the wave, the, the force, I'm not going to describe all that because I don't really know enough, but the force would have caused blisteringly hot, strong winds, which deposited a rain of mineral grains, which have been found on pottery at, and this is the, the excavation site, Tal El Hamam is what they're calling the excavation site. Let's continue on a little more. Five large sites in the region, which have also been excavated, offer additional evidence of an immediate end to settlement at the same time of the proposed Tal El Hamam disaster. According to Science News, radiocarbon dating of organic archaeological evidence has shown that structures, mud brick walls, suddenly disappeared around 3,700 years ago, leaving only stone foundations. This whole article isn't giving any definite things, but it looks like this might be the site where the Sodom and Gomorrah destruction happened. Contemporary potsherds glazed, contemporary potsherds glazes apparently experienced temperatures high enough to transform them to glass, perhaps as hot as the surface of the sun, Sylvia told the news source. So there's pottery there that got so hot that it turned into glass. Now, the study was born of a historical riddle that the most productive agricultural land in the region, which had supported flourishing civilizations continuously for at least 3,000 years, should suddenly relinquish then resist human habitation for such a long period of time has begged investigation. That's why they're saying that's the reason we wanted to study this. You had a flourishing, fertile land where all civilization seemed to kind of grow out of, and then it just stopped. Why? Based on archaeological evidence, it took at least 600 years to recover sufficiently from the soil destruction and contamination before civilization could again become established in the eastern middle gore. That speaks to when the Bible says it destroyed all the crops, it destroyed all the land. Maybe this was where that was. Going on verse 26. But his wife looked back behind him and she became a pillar of salt. I don't know if that's connection to the Dead Sea's salt content, what happened there. It's an interesting connection. I don't know. Verse 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land, which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, when he threw overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt, a place that used to be a land of life. It might have looked something like this, a land of death. In Hebrews chapter 2, for if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So he wanted them to see the seriousness of the old law and judgment, which is what we've just gone over, an example, and how we still see the effects of that today. And it was all about their drifting, their spiritual drifting. And he said, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So the Bible doesn't say here, if you reject so great a salvation. 
It doesn't say if we outright say, nope, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be a Christian. He says if we neglect it. A neglect plays into the idea of a drift. That we could, by inaction, by a lack of focus on our spiritual goals, by a lack of intentional living in God's sight, we could drift. And it's saying that we're not going to escape if we neglect this great salvation. One of the commentators said, a greater word brought by a greater person, having greater promises than the old law, will bring a greater condemnation if it is neglected. We have a wonderful, wonderful new covenant. Why in the world will we neglect our spiritual lives in service of it? Now, it's time for some self-evaluation. This is something you have to do in your seat. I, as a speaker, have to evaluate myself. I'm, we're told in the Bible that teachers shall be given the greater judgment. You have the same job in your seat. Where are you spiritually? The Bible uses the term drift. And when you're, on the, when you're on waters, you're navigating the seas or the lakes. One of the ways you navigate on the water is you use reference points on, on land. You use reference points. And so I ask you to do that with me. Where are you spiritually? Where were you five years ago spiritually compared to where you are now? Are you happy with that? Are you, are you happy or looking back, would you have been happy looking forward to now with where you're at spiritually? Knowing, as Chris talked about a few weeks ago, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Where are you spiritually? Where am I spiritually? I have to ask that same question. Where do you want to be in a couple years? We have to use some, some goals sometimes to give ourselves spiritual focus. To help us understand, am I just drifting spiritually? Am I neglecting my salvation? What goals do you have for the next five years, for the next two years? And are you growing spiritually? Are you giving a more earnest heed to that salvation that we've been called to? Now, amidst these conversations about the severity and judgment, I want to make sure I don't give a totally negative picture. In the New Testament, in 1 John Chapter 1, verse 7, we learn the other side of that. You don't have to live in fear. You don't need to live in fear of the judgment. If you're a Christian, and in particular, as he's in this context, if you were giving more earnest heed to your salvation, you don't have to live in fear. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us, cleanses us from all sin. You can take hope in that and confidence in that. That if you're in the body of Christ today, not just in word, but in lifestyle, in, in commitment, in true focus and obedience, that word cleanses is a continual process, continually cleansing us. That even though we're going to mess up, it's going to happen. We have confidence and comfort in that. Chapter 5, verse 13 says, These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may know that you have eternal life. Now that belief is an active belief, right? We know that. That you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe. See there? So it's not just a one-time thing. That you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. We have comfort. Judgment is serious. But that's why we don't have to have fear. 
Now, the point's made, I think, on both sides. Now we can move on from that. Verse 3 goes on to say, So how great shall we escape if, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So if we were to, to try to defend this case, he's saying the Lord, Jesus, it was confirmed by those who heard him, so even some human witnesses, God the Father also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, so he, he did some serious works, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. So now we have the Holy Spirit, the Savior Jesus, God the Father, and human witnesses. If all of this has been confirmed, if all of this has been seriously portrayed from God himself, according to his own will, from God himself, how shall we escape? This is what he was saying to the Hebrews who might have been leaving the faith or drifting. This word has been delivered by God. It is serious. Verse 5, For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. So once again, he's continuing to make this comparison to angels. The old law, the angels who delivered it. He has not put the world to come. So, this phrase, the world to come, you know, I, I kind of thought that meant, uh, though, maybe after presently. So where we're sitting right now, the world to come after this. Or maybe heaven. But actually... He's writing to Hebrews. We have to remember the audience. And since this is writing to Hebrews, for them, it has been for a long time this world to come. The new age in which the Messiah would come and the church would be established. So for this world to come, from my studies, seems to be the messianic age or the church age in which we live. So for he has not put this church age, the messianic age of which we speak in subjection to angels... One of the commentators from uh, this is the Contending for the Faith commentary read, The time period to which the author refers does not refer to a future world to come. Instead, he refers to the new dispensation, the present Messianic age. So for the Jews, it was the world that had been for so long to come. Okay. So this is where when I was talking a little earlier about how I don't have a handle on all of this, uh, the next five or so verses can be a little challenging. Now, we can make the clear points um, that need to be made. It, it is very clear the, the applications we'll make from it. But as we dive deeper and we dig into these verses, there's, there's kind of rabbit holes of questions you might ask. So I'm going to try to present clearly what we do know um, after reading these verses. So verse 6, But one testified in a certain place, and that is in Psalm 8, a psalm of David, saying, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and with honor. And set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Okay, so you're starting to see kind of the difficulty. There's a lot of hymns and yous and he's. For in that he put... Uh, for in that he put all subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Okay, so let's work through this piece by piece. So this highlighted section 
is what the writer of Hebrews references from the Psalms. Okay, so we have that reference there. So he goes on to say after the reference, so let's, let's take it piece by piece. What is man that you're mindful of him? So this is being said by the psalmist David or the son of man that you take care of him. Okay, so it can apply to all men. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. So the whole point of the Hebrew writer is giving credit to Jesus. So the definite application we can make is that he is trying to use this prophecy of the Messiah and connect, connect it to the Messiah. And we'll see that further as he gets into this. For in that he, being God, put all in subjection under him, I believe that's speaking of Jesus, he, being God, left nothing that is to be put, left nothing that is not put under him. So that sentence basically said, everything is going to be put under the Messiah. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus. Okay, so this is the focus. Who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. Okay, if in the next few minutes it gets a little confusing, or I present it confusingly, the main idea is that he's pointing at an age to be subject to Jesus, not the angels. Okay, subjection to Jesus, not the angels. So, what about this phrase, we do not yet see all things put under him? Does that mean we can't see yet, or does that mean it hasn't happened yet? It's the latter. And I want to direct our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Bible says, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Hasn't happened yet. When he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, hasn't happened yet. We still have governments. We still have a lot of authority over us. Verse 25, for he, speaking of Jesus, must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. So Jesus must reign until God has put all enemies under Jesus' feet. Okay, so that hasn't happened yet. That's very similar to what we just said in Hebrews 2. Okay, so verse 26. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. That hasn't happened yet. We still will die in the world we live in. Verse 27, for he has put all things under his feet. Okay, that's a quotation. But when he says all things put under him, it is evident that he who puts all things under him is accepted. So everyone except for God the Father is going to be put under Jesus uh, yeah, everyone except for God the Father is going to be put under Jesus during this time. Verse 28. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Okay, so the point I was trying to make from this is that this phrase, we do not yet see all things put under him, that's because it hasn't happened yet. All things have not been put uh, under, under Jesus yet. Okay. Verse 9. But we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels. Okay, let me see. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. Okay. When you read this, you can say, is this about man, the psalmist who wrote it? Or is it about Jesus and prophecy? 
the interesting thing is there's parallels. So it's focusing on Jesus, but it's all, many of these things are also hinting back to man in the garden, his original design and his intention. Okay, so verse 3. This is verse 3 of Psalm 8 before the reference that was made. So we pick up in Hebrews saying, what is man that you're mindful of him? But in the actual psalm, I'm going to start here in verse 3. It says, David the psalmist writes, When I consider your heavens, or the skies, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, this is where we picked up. What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him. So this is clearly a human expressing this, right? Verse 5. For you have made him a little lower than the angels. Okay? So we know that that is true both of man and Jesus. Because we are a little lower than the angels. We are not, uh, we are not heavenly beings. But that's also true of Jesus. And I think Hebrews is trying to get us focused on the fact that this is about Jesus. You made him, speaking of Jesus, a little lower than the angels while he was here on earth. And you have crowned him with glory and honor. So this is definitely talking about Jesus. Jesus has glory and honor. But that one's a little confusing for me when I try to apply it to man in general. We'll come back to that. So the third thing he says is that you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. Okay, that's definitely true for Jesus because it talked about he's, put all thing, he's going to put all things in subjection under him. But what about us? Well, in the next verse, it says, You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. So man having dominion over the works of his hands, in some ways, it's a parallel to, to, to Jesus in that man was given dominion on earth. That's a privilege. We have dominion over animals and, and the oxen and all these things. But it's a greater picture of Jesus who is going to have all dominion, all power. Okay. So there are some parallels between fallen man and the perfect man. The difference is <clears throat> Jesus never fell. And when I consider this phrase, you have crowned him with glory and honor. We read in verse 9 of Hebrews 2, but we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels. For the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor. Jesus is definitely crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering for us. Okay, what about us though? So if that's the perfect man, Jesus, what about the fallen man? Can we read that in light of us? I think verse 10, if there is a way, verse 10 might have it. For it was fitting for him, speaking of Jesus, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through, suffer, through sufferings. So maybe the way in which we have been crowned with glory and honor, if that's it, is because we have been brought to glory by Jesus and his sufferings. There's parallels between fallen man and the psalm, but it was also a prophecy of Jesus who would be made lower than the angels, who would be crowned with glory and honor and have all things put under his feet with never failing. He never failed. He never got kicked out of the garden because of his sin and lost his, his purity. Okay. That's where we're going to stop. 
It's in the middle of the chapter, but we've made the point that Jesus is greater than the angels. We should listen to that word spoken because of the severity of judgment, the seriousness of judgment, but also because of the beauty of the covenant we can come into. And we see that Jesus is great. He is crowned with glory and honor, and He's brought us, bringing us to glory. If you're not a part of this kingdom that He saves, why not today? We've already talked about the severity of judgment and, and the goodness of God, and it's a simple but difficult process. We can hear the word as we've already started to today. Believe this word. Repent of our past life. Change to live God's way. And confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Be baptized for the remission of our sins. If you haven't done that, why not? Why not give a more earnest heed to your soul's salvation today? Why not put that at the priority on the first day of this new week? You will serve God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.